0: Hello, I'm Scott Millis, Senior Pastor here at Living Word Family Church, and I'd like to welcome you to our podcast. We want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope that today's message encourages you and equips you in your walk with Christ. Here's today's message. I'm going to look at just uh, two or three passages of Scripture today, and if you want to follow along in a hard copy of the Bible and you don't have one, raise your hand, we can get you one. Otherwise, those scriptures should be on the screen here. But I encourage you to bring a Bible. Um, it's been a few weeks since I was in the pulpit on a Sunday. Or at least preaching a sermon from the pulpit on Sunday. Uh, but before all that craziness, I was preaching a series on the superiority of the Word of God. Uh, that the Word, the Bible, is superior to the gifts of the Spirit. It's certainly superior to our experiences and uh, superior, of course, to anything that comes against it. And I kind of deviated from that series to talk about where is God when bad things happen. That was a sermon I was talking about my crazy conspiracy theorist friend. I don't know if you remember that message from a few weeks ago. But before that, <laughs> I shared a message on Abraham and Sarah and how they had to make a choice between believing and remaining loyal to their circumstances or to believe and remain loyal to the Word of God. You know, on one hand, you had their circumstances. They were old. They were beyond uh, the age of childbearing. And on the other hand, they had a specific promise from God that they would indeed have a son. And this is referenced uh, we, we, of course, we read about it in Genesis, it's referenced in Romans, and it's referenced again in chapter 11 of Hebrews, which is often referred to as the Hall of Faith. And this is where Paul, or whoever wrote the book of Hebrews, um, I've shared in the past why I believe it is Paul, but it ultimately doesn't matter because God is the one uh, who dictated it. Uh, but he goes through the early chapters and the early books of the Bible chronologically, in case you never noticed that, when it lists these uh, heroes of the faith, and uh, talks about how by faith these individuals did things, received things, and pleased God. Talks about Abel and Enoch and Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, the Israelites under Moses, the Israelites under Joshua and Rahab. And then in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 32, here's what we read. Hebrews eleven thirty two, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead raised to life again. Now it would be good sometime, maybe soon, to look at some of those guys in detail. Just go through this list, this hall of faith, and look at each one who is named and why they are named in this list. Uh, But for now, notice and remember this. The author of Hebrews, Paul, is not holding these guys up as paragons of virtue. He is not saying, look at these men and women and imitate them, emulate them, live your life as they lived their lives. There's some messed up people in this list. The four of them in a row there are, uh, are in the book of Judges. And Gideon, who's one of the best in that part of the list, uh, made a huge error, committed grave sin, uh, and that led, you know, his, this whole, you remember the book of Judges, right? What was the issue? You know, they would fall into this, this idolatry and fall away from God. And, God, and then the, the judgment would, would come in in the form of these invading nations, the Philistines nipping at their heels. And so they'd pray for deliverance and God would raise up a Gideon or a Jephthah or a Samson or a Deborah or a Barak and deliver them, and then as soon as that judge died, the people would fall back into sin, and the sin that they kept flirting with was idolatry. And what does Gideon do after he'd won these great victories, and after the people had come and said, rule over us, you and your sons, please rule over us, and your grandsons too. <coughs> and Gideon says, I'm not going to rule over you, God's going to rule over you. I'm like, yeah, Gideon. And he says, bring me all your earrings. And he has them melted down and and formed into this ephod, this this a uh, uh, golden Uh, idol of a priestly garment and sets it up and what happens? The people start worshipping it. He leads them into idolatry after he had delivered them. Or God had used Gideon to deliver. And he was a good one. But think about guys like Samson. We are not called to imitate Samson. Jephthah, great leader, great fighter. Rash. You know, that horrible mistake he made with his with his daughter offering her up apparently as an actual burnt offering because of a rash vow. We're not instructed to imitate their lives. We are encouraged to consider what they accomplished, not by virtue of their character, but by faith. That faith was often displayed. In simple obedience, when God would tell them through a word of prophecy, uh, through an appearance of the angel of the Lord, "You lead my people into battle. You take this many men and you go to this army, and I will deliver this army into your hand." This—just imagine. You know, we see this and we think, "Well, I mean, really, just try. Close your eyes. Put yourself in that position." Gideon wasn't out there looking for a... For an, he wasn't out there trying to raise an army. He didn't have it in his heart to go and battle the Philistines. He was hiding. He was treading out the grain in the wine press, right? Or, I mean, he's, he's underground. He's just trying to stay off the, the, the radar of the, of the Philistines. Uh, and, and this angel, the angel of the Lord, appears to him, you mighty man of valor. What? It wasn't in his nature. But something about this appearance when God spoke to him, caused him to obey. And God did mighty things through Gideon, and so many of these others. But I want to back up and look at something, because here's what jumped out, out at me. Back in verse 33. These heroes of the faith did what? They subdued kingdoms. They worked righteousness And obtained promises. And what is a kingdom? Are there things that are ruling over you? A kingdom represents power, dominion, authority. Are there things, are there kingdoms in your life that are exercising illegitimate power over you, but exercising that power nonetheless? Preventing you from serving God like you know you should, or like you know you are called to. You know, in the Old Testament, they had a command from God. Accompanied often by a promise from God. They trusted in his power. They didn't have a lot of the word to stand on. Now I want you to uh, go back some time and read, Judges is one of those fairly easy books to read because it's a story, it's a, it's a series of stories and battles and leaders and successes and failures and really colorful characters. And I mentioned Jephthah, who was, he was uh, really rough around the edges. Uh, But they needed somebody rough around the edges and after they had sort of kicked him out of their household and out of the city And then things got bad. They went looking for him. We need Jephthah to lead us in battle He's the toughest guy we know Uh, And he actually even though he was rough even though he was by nature a fighter He went out to the uh, I think it was the Amorites You have to forgive me a little rusty on that, but he went out and tried diplomacy first He went out to reason with them and said listen, why are you doing this? This is our land. Why are you coming in here? Uh, Why are you in battle array trying to take this over? And they said, well, because uh, if you go back and look at the history of the ownership of this land, we were here first. This was ours, and it was stolen from us. And Jephthah delivers a pretty lengthy account and biblically correct account of who owned the land and why. And he went clear back to the Exodus and said, no, here's what happened, pal. When Moses was leading our ancestors uh, through this area, all they wanted was, was passage, peaceful passage through the land, and the king wouldn't let them. And so they went around and they asked another one, and he wouldn't let them either. And so uh, one thing led to another. Uh, God himself took this land because of their uh, inhospitable attitude toward our ancestors and gave it to us. Not only that, and this was kind of the, the the killer argument, he said, this was all 300 years ago. It's ours now. It's been ours for 300. If you really thought you had a right to it, why are you waiting until now to take it back? It's not going to happen. So Jephthah, all that to say, Whether Jephthah had ready access to it, all that stuff had been written down by the time Jephthah was on the scene. And whether it had just been shared with him, uh, you know, uh, in the oral tradition down through the ages, or whether he had actually read it, he was quoting Scripture. He was standing on the written, recorded promises of God. Now, you and I... We've been given authority from God the Son himself. We don't need to wait for a specific word of personal prophecy. If there is a kingdom, a power, a spirit, a force of any kind that is attacking us, hindering us, stealing from us, we have already been given that authority. We have to walk in it. We have to speak it. We have to exercise that authority. They subdued kingdoms by faith. We can subdue kingdoms by faith. There are kingdoms that try to rise up in our lives, but we have already been given power and authority over them. Subdue those kingdoms. What else did they do? They worked righteousness. Do you realize how big a deal this is? The sin nature, ever since the fall of Adam, the sin nature causes us to be drawn toward works of the flesh sinful acts, sinful works. I talked about this on Wednesday night a little bit. Uh, These folks, way back then, in the early account of, of, of the Hall of Faith here, they managed to do righteous works by faith. They managed to obey the word of the Lord while still encumbered by the sin nature, still under the curse of the law. You and I we have a huge advantage we have experienced the new birth we have become partakers of the divine nature of God the indwell we enjoy the indwelling of the holy spirit and if all that is true should we not be workers of righteousness to a much greater degree a more consistent degree than those heroes of faith in the Old Testament. Should that not be the case? They subdued kingdoms. And they worked righteousness by faith. What else did they do? They obtained promises. And we know a little bit about this, don't we? This is what we were talking about when we looked at Abraham and Sarah. But there are so many examples of this in Scripture. Now, Again, some of the early entrants uh, in, in, in Hebrews 11, in this hall of faith, didn't have scripture to stand on. They still obtained promises. Look at the Exodus. What did God tell them? He was going to take them to this land, take them back to this land, spoke it through Moses to them, and eventually it did get written down. And again, some had access, like Jephthah we just looked at, to the earliest scriptures. And the more scripture they had, the easier it was to stand on these promises and remember what God had said. But look, what do you and I have? We've got the whole Bible. So much more. And it's progressive revelation. These things become more and more clear as we get through more and more of the Bible. All the way up to and through the New Testament. And all of these promises... And what about those promises? What, what did we learn? What did we hear last week? The, all these promises are yes. And in Christ, they are what? Amen. This is what it takes to make the hall of faith, subdue kingdoms, work righteousness, and obtain promises. What's the great news? Christ has already done the work. We don't subdue kingdoms by our own effort. We don't work righteousness by our own effort. And we don't obtain promises by our own effort. We simply agree and agree with and submit to the word of God and the finished work of Christ. You see, this is the connection between what we're looking at today and what we were looking at Wednesday night. I was talking about freedom in Christ. The liberty we have as a result of the finished work of Jesus Christ. How we've been set free from the law of sin and death. But we are admonished to not use that freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. We're not supposed to use it as license to do whatever we want, but to use that freedom as an opportunity to do what we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul brilliantly makes the case that the law, while perfect itself, was unable to produce holiness and obedience in mankind because of the sin nature. But the new birth and the baptism of the Holy Spirit actually empower us to live these holy lives and to walk in that obedience. My emphasis Wednesday night was on our confession of faith. And we can and should and must speak God's word. That's what the word, when we talk about our confession of faith, that word confess means what? It doesn't mean admit to. This isn't a criminal uh, an accusatory situation, it's to say together with, to speak with God, to agree with our mouths with God and his word, to say what he has said, speak his word in our situations. And we, and we say, we confess that we are redeemed from the curse Redeemed from poverty, sickness, and death. And we should speak these things over over our lives. But again, this is from Wednesday. Also speak with the same conviction and urgency concerning our desires. That God has made a way for us to be free of the lust of the flesh. Not that I don't believe that this side of heaven we will ever be completely free of temptation. But I believe that we can, by setting our mind on the things of the Spirit, avoid fulfilling the lust of the flesh. And we should be passionately committed to obedience. Even more passionate than we are about getting our healing, about being provided for, about our protection. All these things are good. All these things are God's will. And we can get pretty passionate about those, especially when we're facing, when we're in a battle for those things. But we should be just as passionate about walking and living holy lives. These men and women of old distinguished themselves as people, as heroes of the faith with simple obedience in the face of danger, in the face of overwhelming odds, and even in the face of death, because God spoke a word to them. God has spoken to us, hasn't he? We live in an age, thank God, where we, uh, you know, God does speak through prophets and visions and dreams. But we have the more sure word of prophecy that we can refer to again and again and again and order our lives around, the written, recorded word of God. And we have access to many, many more specific promises. And we have the testimony of the lives of all those who have gone before us. Which is why those are right there in the hall of faith. And despite their failures and flaws, they managed to please God with what? Their faith. Now look quickly at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, beginning in verse 1. just says lay this stuff aside. First of all, notice that, it's, that not everything we are to lay aside is specifically a sin. It says the weights and the sin. There are things that, that, that we are sort of loaded with. Sometimes it's our possessions. Sometimes it's our hobbies. Some, anything that takes, not that we can't have hobbies, not that we can't do things for enjoyment, but when these things begin to crowd out the Word of God in our lives, and our specific Christian responsibilities, we have to lay them aside. And certainly the sin. He makes it sound easy here, though, doesn't it? Just lay it aside. <laughs> lay aside these weights and sins so that we can run better, so that we can run faster, because there's a race that he has set before us. What's holding you back? Identify these things, first of all. Is it a habit? Is it an addiction? Is it some manifestation of the lust of the flesh? But it might be something that is that is uh, on the surface absolutely innocuous or even good. But is it? Has it begun to occupy a place in your life that is higher than it should be? Where it's crowding out the word of God? Where it's crowding out your Christian responsibilities? Lay these things aside. You know, there's a, <clears throat> a story I've told. Uh, I'm, I'm almost certain I've mentioned this, but uh, and I, I don't talk. I haven't talked. In detail about my experiences there in quite a while but my first job in occupational ministry was as a counselor at a place called Canaan Land Ministries in southern Alabama a togaville Alabama population 999 so I just I decided I was number 1,000 when I when I moved there and uh, this was a home for men with life-controlling problems uh, we had uh, ten rooms for students. We called them students. Not they weren't inmates. They weren't patients. They were students. Two men to a room. Twenty students at any given time. Uh, three or four counselors. Uh, after a couple months, I was I, w- I became the lodge director. And uh, this was an intense experience working with these guys. It was a, I was there for a little less than a year and a half, and I got there was more. Uh, my experiences and the, and the pressures and the opportunities there were so compressed. Uh, God probably did more in that year and a half to prepare me for what I'm doing now than uh, any ten years uh, of my life before or after. It was very and, and a guy named Mac Gober was the founder and president of that ministry. Many of you have probably heard him or seen his testimony, and if you haven't, it's worth checking out. He was an old biker dude, uh, but. All that to say, the guys that came to Canaan Land when I was there, this was during the crack epidemic, and so about 95% of the guys that would come were coming because they were crack addicts. We had uh, one heroin addict and one severe alcoholic, and I think everybody else who came there was a crack addict. And they were strung out. I mean, these guys looked bad when they came to us and they had to be back because the requ- it, this was not <laughs> this was not a spa this was an old old lodge it had, it used to be uh i think an old uh, um, camp lodge or something that belonged to the assemblies of god it was out in the woods of alabama we didn't have a lot of amenities it was it was very spartan uh the food was all donated stuff or stuff we got from the food bank uh it was uh and it was a year long program and and you couldn't be committed there Uh, maybe around half the guys at any given time were there as an alternative to jail or prison but they still had to make the decision to go there Uh, and especially the guys who weren't there because of uh, the threat of jail or prison hanging over their heads they had to, I mean, to go from wherever they were to commit to being there a year Uh, with a very um, ordered life, very scheduled, very regimented life for a year, they had to be convinced that it's that or die. And most of them really had reached the point, if I don't do this, I will be dead. But, and I can't tell you how many times I had this conversation because I was in charge of in-processing these guys after a while. And so many of them said, the hardest thing for me about deciding to come here was the, the no smoking rule. Not, sm- not smoking crack. I knew I couldn't smoke crack when I came here. But uh, the fact that we couldn't even bring cigarettes. You know, this was a crutch I figured I would absolutely have to have if I was going to quit smoking crack. But I realized I could not come if I, if I were going to smoke. But I had to get here made the decision that I would do this. Some of them even said, I stopped across the street on the edge of the property, the property, smoked one last cigarette. But they made the decision and the commitment to lay that down. And I, again, I can't, I, at least a dozen of these guys in my short time there said, and the second I stepped onto the property, God took that desire completely away from me. This is what's key. Now, I wish that would happen with everything. Don't you? Man, I've been praying about this. I'm committed. I want to stop this. I want to be free of this. And then as soon as you make that commitment, hey, that was easy. I don't even want to do that anymore. But here's what was key. These guys made that hard decision first. In their mind, it's like, I need to do this. It's going to be hard. But for at least a year, I'm going to lay this down. They make the commitment first, and then once they step into obedience, that's when God made it easy. He doesn't always make it easy before we make the decision. He doesn't always make it easy before we commit ourselves, but he will honor our commitment by what? Making our paths straight, level. But we have to start down that hard path first. When we look at this passage in Hebrews chapter 12 in this great cloud of witnesses, probably the most common picture that has been conjured up either when you just read it or maybe when you've heard about it, it's almost like a grandstand that all those who have gone before us are in heaven watching us, watching us run our leg of the race. And that's a useful picture. It's a motivating picture, but it's not really what this passage is talking about. And I think most of you know that. You imagine being up in heaven eating popcorn watching everything that's going on down here. Now, now there's some indication uh that 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 people who are in heaven are at least aware of what's going on down here. I just have an almost impossible time imagining that if I'm in heaven and I'm privy to seeing now again, I I don't think we are uh, I I do believe personally that the minute we die, we are in the presence of Jesus. I think scripture is very, very clear on that. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But our body, we are absent from the body. We will not receive a glorified body until the general resurrection. But spiritually, we are with the Lord. And I think we have, with spiritual eyes, we can see the spiritual kingdom. And I just think there's things that are a million times more captivating and interesting in heaven than anything that's going on here on earth. Neither here nor there. This great cloud of witnesses are not gazing down at heaven, cheering us on or going, oh no. This cloud of, this witnesses, this term witnesses is actually a legal term. There's going to be, and here's the picture you're supposed to get, that one day you're going to be standing before God, giving an account for your life on this earth in the flesh. And maybe you hear something like this. Remember when I told you to do this? Remember when you knew you were supposed to do this? Yeah. Why didn't you do it? Well, I was going to, but it was so hard. It was difficult. And then one of the witnesses stands up, Abraham, for instance. All I had was one word from God. I didn't have a community of believers encouraging me. I lived in a a community that that worshipped idols. I had no baptism of the Holy Spirit. I had no Bible. And I was journeying. He didn't even tell me what this land was like. He just said, go. He said, go to this land. I'll show it to you. I'll give it to you when you get there. A little bit harder than what he asked you to do, but I did it. Uh, why didn't you witness for me? Why didn't you uh, live your faith out loud? Well, I started to, but people made fun of me. They teased me. And then Daniel rises up. I was thrown into a den of lions Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We were thrown into a furnace of literal fire. Hebrews 12, verse 3. We consider these witnesses. Wait a second. We consider these witnesses. Daniel. Paul. The three Hebrew children. All of these who went through so many things. Paul talks about some of these specifics, and then he says, he starts speaking in more uh, general terms about those who died, who refused release, who endured genuine persecution, torture, and death. But here's what he says in, in, uh, in verse 3 of chapter 12. For consider him, Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls you have not yet resisted to bloodshed striving against sin praise and worship team come on up here the rest of you stand We are promised so many great and precious things in scriptures. And we need to attach our faith to those things and attach our mouth to that faith and confess those things and speak them into existence. We are promised a lot of things. One of the things that we are not promised, at least as far as I can see, is that this is all going to be easy. That the walk of faith is sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. There are difficulties. What we are promised is we don't go through any of this stuff alone and that there always is a way through these things. You look at the people who experienced God's great deliverance. Noah, my mom's hero, you know, that this flood was going to come and he didn't take Noah out of the world. Noah went through that whole flood. He just stayed on top of it. He was delivered through it. He did not deliver the three Hebrew children, these young men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, better known as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He didn't deliver them from the fiery furnace. They went in, but he went in there with them. It doesn't say they quenched the flames. It says they quenched the violence of the flames. The flames were real, but it couldn't touch them. But they still had to go through it. He didn't deliver Daniel from the lion's den. He simply closed the lion's mouth. There's going to be some moments where this is tough, but we have to be able, have to know that we believe God and we can speak these things and believe these things. And so he says, they list these things. Look, they all went through this. Keep your eyes on Jesus and look at what he endured. And he endured it all. Him being God in the flesh, the perfect son of God, endured these things at the hands of filthy sinners. And you haven't resisted sin to the point of shedding blood, so stop your whining and take it a little more seriously. Don't just say, well, it's hard and God understands, so I'm just going to go ahead and sin. No. No, no, no. God has called us to so much more. And the great news is, this is, a, this is an overarching message of grace here. What God calls you to do, he equips you to do if he calls you to do it if he commands you to do it he makes you able he empowers you to be able to do it and if he's called you to lay these things aside he will enable you to lay these things aside but you have to decide to do it so here's my here's my altar call here's my invitation to you today first of all if if you didn't get the message God has standards God is holy and the standard for being in his presence and enjoying his, uh, his heaven. Let's look, let's look beyond this life for a moment. Is to be holy. How much sin can you carry to heaven with you? None. God cannot abide the presence of sin. So we're all doomed from that starting point. Because we all have the sin nature. Bad news again, of course, is there's nothing we can do to clean ourselves up. The good news is God knew that and provided a way ahead of time. He took your sin. He took that stain. He took that fallenness and put it, he loaded it all on Jesus and poured out his judgment on Jesus. That was the cross. That's where he authored our faith. That's where he began it, where he issued it. All right, this is, and he perfects it through this uh, process of sanctification and walking through this Christian walk, but the work is done. We have to look at the cross and say, I needed that because I couldn't save myself. And then humble ourselves and say, I receive it. I need that salvation. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It is only the finished work, work of Jesus Christ that can save you. If you desire to be saved, if you desire that new birth, once you become a born-again child of God, you are entitled to the baptism of the Holy Spirit and all of this power that God has promised that enables us to do everything he's called us to do and live the way he's called us to live. Second invitation is this, and Greg, do you have that book? uh, is, uh you know, maybe you're like me, maybe you got saved when you were 12 years old. But you're realizing, man, I've just been taking a lot of this for granted. Well, I think we've all gone through moments like that. There, there's probably a handful of people who you've been on on a more or less steady trajectory upward, and praise God for those of you for that kind of faithfulness. But if you find yourself in a point where it's like, man, no, 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 I've been taking my salvation for granted. I have not passionately pursued holiness, righteous works. I've not, I'm letting these kingdoms interfere with the kingdom I should be pursuing rather than subduing those kingdoms, working righteousness, and obtaining promises. Uh, uh, he was uh, sharing with me a passage from this book that I think really went, uh, dovetailed nicely with, with what I was preaching today. And he shared that with me before he knew what I was
1: preaching today. So I asked if he would read. There's, there's a two or three paragraphs I want him to share with you out of this book. These are the burning questions that every disciple of Jesus must answer in total candor. Do you hunger for Jesus Christ? Do you yearn to spend time alone with him in prayer? Is he the most important person in your life? Does he fill your soul like a song of joy? Is he on your lips as a shout of praise? Do you eagerly turn to his memoirs, his personal testament, his gospels to learn more of him? Are you making the effort to die to anything and everything that would inhibit, diminish, or threaten your friendship with him? To discern where you really are with the Lord, recall what what has saddened you recently. Was it the realization that you don't love Jesus enough? That you do not seek his face in prayer often enough? That you can't honestly say that the greatest thing that has ever happened in your life is that Jesus came to you and you heard his voice? that you do not regard finding Jesus as your supreme happiness? That you have denied his last commandment by not loving his people enough? Or have you been saddened and depressed over a lack of human respect, criticism from an authority figure, financial problems, lack of friends, or your bulging waistline? On the other hand, what has gladdened you recently? Reflection on your election to the Christian community? The joy of praying, Abba, father i belong to you the afternoon you stole away with the gospel as your only companion the thrilling awareness that god loves you unconditionally just as you are and not as you should be a small victory over selfishness or were the sources of your gladness and joy a new car a brooks brother's suit a movie a pizza or a vacation to Paris. What do you think?
0: Two invitations. I'm going to pray. When I'm done praying, you guys got a song to go out on? They'll start singing. When they start singing, you want to respond to one of those invitations, you come on up here. You come up here if you want to give your heart to Christ, if you want to walk out of here a new creature, born again, saved, new birth, precious, precious gift that God gives the world, then you come up here and let me pray with you. If you're a believer and you want to be baptized in the Holy Spirit because you've never experienced that, that's God's gift to the believer. I want to pray with you to receive the Holy Spirit. Or if you just want to recommit your life, get serious about this, I invite you. Here are the, I'll, I'll be glad to pray with you. You can come kneel up here at the altar. I would encourage you to do that. You can pray from where you are. You can make that commitment from your chair. But there's something about uh, assuming a, a physical posture of repentance and commitment. Moving to a position where you can look back and say, that's the Sunday, that's the morning. That I stepped into the salvation that God provided me. And started truly walking it out. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these awesome examples that you've preserved for us in your world. These awesome examples, men and women of faith who managed to please you and do things, subdue kingdoms, work righteousness, and obtain promises simply by believing your word and obeying. We thank you this morning for the new birth, for the Holy Spirit, for all of the great and precious promises that you have given us. And we are determined, Lord, to walk those things out and honor you with our lives and to walk in that faith. It's my prayer, Lord God, if there's anybody in this room or in the sound of my voice who does not know you as their Lord and Savior, that they would come to know you today, that you would make yourself known, make your will known, and grant them the wisdom, the humility, and the boldness to come and receive that free gift of eternal life today, and that you would move on all of us that you would draw us closer to yourselves and move us to make the kind of commitment that people who didn't even have the new birth were able to make to you. Give that testimony of living by faith, that we would walk this out. You've made such tremendous power available to us, Lord. We want to walk in a way that demonstrates that power, that authority, that commitment, that love. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come.
1: Thanks again for listening.